It's a delight to gather with you to worship the Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. Uh, my name is Matthew Cruz. I'm one of our pastors today. I have the, the call, the privilege, uh, the duty to stand before you and bring the words of God to bear on your soul. We don't get to see Jesus in the flesh speaking to us. I know some of us in our pride would like that. You send me Jesus, then I'll listen. Well, he sent you me. Uh, Most likely a much worse sinner than you. But in his grace, he's given his church pastors and teachers. And you attend your heart to Christ as you attend your heart to the preaching of the word. So I hope you are humble this morning to sit and do that with us. Um, And our hope is that these words that we use would be understandable and accessible and helpful in pointing you to the beauty and the glory of Christ. So that's what we're doing in this time together. All right, today we come across one of the most dramatic, most intense. You could take a butter knife and cut your way through this scene. That's how thick this is. I can't watch scenes in the whole New Testament. We're going to have Paul standing before Peter, James, and John and unpacking his gospel for them. All right, to set this up, let me talk for a second about reality TV, specifically reality TV with judges involved. So in my day, before reality TV became ubiquitous everywhere 24-7, there was only a handful of reality TV shows, and there was only one with a judge. It was called The People's Court. And this retired, cranky, bitter, matter-of-fact old judge was presiding over these petty but real-life cases. And he would say to the plaintiff, what's your problem? And then to the defendant, what did you do? And in a matter of minutes, he would drop that, gavel, and he would make his decision. Uh, So we grew up watching this show. Now, it was so fast, and he was so abrupt, and it was only 30 minutes, that you did not build any kind of emotional connection to the people who were being judged. But nowadays, we do reality TV different. We have hour-long, and two-hour-long, and season-long shows with contestants and with judges. Now, because Grace's passion is all things culinary, the one that we get into as a family is called Chopped. Uh, We don't have cable at home, but whenever we get near cable TV, so on vacation, at a hotel, at my parents' house, just a side note, but the girls were talking and Julia said, yeah, if my papa ever died, I would never get over it. And then Callie goes, yeah, no more cable. (laughs) So these kids like their cable TV on sleepovers. And when we get near cable TV, we find the Food Network and we find Chop. Do you know what this is? It's a highly stressful show for me because I do everything in my life fast except cook. So if Grace does send me to the kitchen, which is not frequent, but it happens, it just takes me forever to come up with scrambled eggs. And I like go through a whole carton. I'm very precision. I'm like, how many eggs was that supposed to be? This is no good. I'm doing it again. 
Not this show. In this show, they give these four contestants ingredients, and they say, go, and you have 10 minutes to make a dessert or 15 minutes to make an entire meal on there. And what they do is they cook really fast, and they work really hard, and they put all of their training and all of their competence to bear on these meals. And then they take these plates with these meals on them, and they present them before these well-known, big resume, clearly established judges. And those judges make a judgment on the chef's work. If it is affirmed, they win, or it gets chopped. All right, now this show is an hour long, which means two things. Number one, way too many commercials about stuff I don't buy, like toilet cleaner and paper towels and saran wrap. And also, it means that you get emotionally involved with these contestants. So you pick somebody and you say, that's my guy, that's my girl. And then as the show progresses, it gets more and more intense if they keep going. And in the 59th minute, you're saying, oh, I hope this goes well for my guy or for my girl. Do you feel that place that you get when at the very end of that show, they're putting their work before these established judges? Okay, maybe you're not a foodie, so you can replace that with American Idol or America's Got Talent or whatever it would be. That feeling of being emotionally invested in someone who is hoping to get the commendation of an established panel of judges, if you ratchet that up a thousand times, that's what we have in our text today. We have Paul. He is carrying the gospel of grace that Jesus gave him and the gospel that he preached in Galatia, and all the work that he had accomplished for 14 years, and he is putting it before the Jerusalem apostles. Will our man Paul and his work be rejected, chopped? Will it be amended, kind of corrected? Or will he be affirmed and commended? What's it going to be? All right, as we work through this text, you should be pulling not just for Paul because he's your guy and you like him, but you should be pulling for the purity and the simplicity and the freedom and the graceness of the gospel. I know this may sound like a text about a scene from 2,000 years ago, but we should be rejoicing in a half hour when we see that grace, gospel grace, was preserved. All right, let's pray that through and we'll jump into it. Father, I pray that we would see your grace all over the words of Scripture this morning and that time and time and time and time and time and time again, grace has been preserved and legalism has been rejected and our joy and Jesus' glory have intersected in beautiful ways. Give us a delight to see that this morning. I pray that you do it. Amen. Okay, quick recap. Paul and Barnabas, church planting team, planted churches in the region of Galatia. They showed up. They preached grace. People heard the gospel. They believed it. They were baptized. Churches got planted. It was beautiful. Two seconds later, some false teachers came right on their heels, and they did two things. They attacked their message. They said, no, that gospel is not sufficient Repentance and faith in Jesus is nice and important, 
but you have to do some things to be saved, to be justified. It is necessary for you to add your works to Jesus' work. And then they also, number two, attacked Paul's apostleship, and they said, besides, this guy is not a legit spokesman for Jesus. No. We're the ones with the ties to the Jerusalem apostles. Listen to us. And so in the first section of the letter to the Galatians, Paul is defending his apostleship, not out of pride, but because he loves his people. Our first proof that he's an apostle was last week. It was his impossible to explain conversion story, except that Jesus met him and saved him. This week, he's pressing a second evidence of his apostleship, and that is that he receives overwhelming commendation from the established apostles. All right, you got that? Let's work the text together. It starts out here. It says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. All right, so already in this letter, Paul has established the fact that grand total in his whole life, in 14 years of ministry, he had spent two measly weeks with the apostles. That was it. The point of saying that is that there is no physical way that he received his gospel from them. In other words, he did not go and audit their class. He did not work his way through their syllabus. He did not go up to Jerusalem and run through their Jerusalem church, ox track, and church planting residency. He didn't do any of that because he didn't have the time to. He was with them for 13, 14 days, and that was just to get to know each other. Now, as soon as he said that, his opponents came in and said, exactly. What we have here is that Paul is a renegade. Paul is a lone ranger. Paul is a wingnut. Paul is a loose cannon who does not have the commendation of the real apostles. He is saying one thing. They're saying another thing. Who are you going to believe here? Paul was, history tells us anyway, was bald and bow-legged and not a good speaker. So you can see them like, are you going to listen to this bald, bow-legged, unimpressive speaker or the super apostles in Jerusalem who were with Jesus and are running a mega church right now? They're trying to drive a wedge between Paul and Peter and James and John. And in doing that, they're trying to divide Christ. All right, well, all of this needs to get settled. And so after 14 years, finally, Paul is walking uphill to Jerusalem for a meeting with the apostles. All right, a giant question. Why, what was the motive of his heart? Why did he make this trip? We got to have precision on this. Here's what he says. I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Okay, let's spend some time here. First question, was Paul summoned to Jerusalem? Did the apostles there get on their cell phone and say, hey, can somebody get a hold of Paul, please, and tell him to get himself up to Jerusalem so that we can hear him out and vet him and make sure that he has our stamp of approval? 
No. In other words, Paul is not getting called to the principal's office in this text. That's not it. Instead, he says what? I went up because of a revelation. So now we're not exactly sure the timing or the nature of that revelation. It seems to coincide with a vision that a prophet had about a famine that was coming to Jerusalem. It may just be that the Spirit of God was compelling and pressing upon Paul's heart that now was the time to go to Jerusalem and have this meeting. But whatever the case, who is initiating this visit? Not Jerusalem. It's God the Father through the Spirit with Paul's initiative in calling this meeting. All right. Then second question. Was Paul going there to make sure that he had the right gospel? Was he going because he had self-doubts and he wanted to go, wait a minute, did I misunderstand what Jesus said to me? Did I hear this wrong? Am I okay here? Let me go get a second opinion. No. He is not like a law student here taking the bar exam so that someone can stamp certified, competent, accomplished on his resume. Sometimes you see this when you watch Chopped. They're doing the interviews of the candidates at the beginning. And she's like, I can't believe he went back to that analogy again. Well, sometimes you see this and they'll go, look, I'm not here to be validated today. I already know that I'm a great chef and I got a great business and my people love my food. That's not why I have come today. I don't need them to tell me that. It's the same thing here with Paul. Again, not with an attitude, but any other posture would make no sense at all. If Jesus appears to you, do you need to go get the thumbs up from Peter, James, and John? No, there's a food chain here, right? And at the top is Jesus, the chief shepherd. And who you have is okay, you're good. If you weren't sure about your gospel, would you wait 14 years to go to Jerusalem? No, you'd, you'd get that done pretty early on. And besides, this is the man that already told us, if I change my gospel, anathema me, call God's curse on me. So he's not going up there to get his gospel itself vetted. He's not looking for personal approval. Here's why he went up to Jerusalem, in order to make sure that I was not running and I had not run in vain. In other words, it wasn't his certainty that was at stake, it was his fruitfulness He had gotten all this work done, just buckets of gospel work. And he knew that if him and the Jewish apostles were not on the same page, united in the gospel, it would be very easy for his converts to fall back into legalism and fall away from grace. And if that happened, his work would end up being in vain. Okay, so this is why he is in Jerusalem. This is why he humbled himself and went onto their turf because he loves Jesus and he loves Jesus' church and he wants to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Okay, so he arrives in Jerusalem and when he gets there, this scene has three different parties involved in this conversation. The first was these dudes, Peter, James, and John, Peter's also called Cephas in your text, two different names. These are the apostles to the Jews. These are the clearly called, gifted, qualified, established messengers of the gospel of Jesus. He calls them pillars. 
He calls them the ones who seemed influential. Uh, He's doing that with a little bit of sarcasm, not against Peter, James, and John, but against those who would prop them up above him. He goes to see these three pillars, these three influential men. They are leading the biggest church that existed in this day. If he and they are on the same page, we're good. He goes up to see these three men. They're waiting for him to arrive. All right, the second party is Paul and Barnabas with Titus. Okay, so it's two apostles and one convert. And I love this. Barnabas was as Jewish as you could possibly be. His real name was Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He had the spiritual gift of making people feel really loved. Like you hang out with Barnabas, you feel like a cookie that just got pulled out of the oven. Oh, you can still feel the chocolate melting. Everybody loved Barnabas. This is the kind of guy that you take to a meeting where you want there to be peace, right? If you're headed for a brawl or a fist fight in this church, who do you take with you? So you take Ryan Goldstone, or you take John Park, or you take Joey Breen, or you take Jeremy Davis. If you're headed for a meeting that you just want peace, who do you take? You take Simone Goldstone, or Brooke Park, or Laurel. She smiles, everybody just melts immediately. There's like 20 other names. I won't embarrass the rest of you that I came up with. Joey's mom was one of them. Andrea, I'll take her with me to a meeting about peace. She sets everyone at ease. He walks in with Barnabas, he wants this to go well, and he walks in with Titus. Titus was as not Jewish as you could possibly be. Walking Titus into this meeting is like walking me into a line dance, a Blackstone Cherry concert, a Leah Sophia party, just What do you even do there for three hours? I would be like the oddest person in that room. I picked this wedding ring out in like 19 seconds. Is that gold? I'll take that. Titus was totally out of place in Jerusalem and in this meeting. Jews did not hang out with Gentiles unless they had been converted to Judaism and physically circumcised. And this text makes it clear that Titus had not been circumcised. Okay, this is the first time that that word comes up in this book. It's a very central theme. It's hard to talk about, but let me just press this with you for a minute. When the Lord covenanted with Abraham in grace and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I am for you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a promised land. I am with you. He gave him a sign to show off that Abraham belonged to God now. And that sign was circumcision in the flesh. And he told Abraham, you, all the men in your household, and all your children for future generations, your sons representing the homes, they need to be circumcised as a sign that they belong to me. And so beginning with Abraham and down through affirmation in the Mosaic Covenant and all the way down to the day of Jesus, being circumcised was a sign that you belong to Jesus 
it would be impossible for someone to belong to Jesus with their household without being circumcised. But in the incarnation of the Son of God and the ushering of the new covenant and the bringing of the gospel, a new day had come. It wasn't a day that said that circumcision is bad or wrong or sinful. It was a day that said, hey, this sign and many others have been fulfilled in Christ, and they are unnecessary any longer. Here's the gospel of the new covenant. If you have Jesus, you have life, period. Any attempt now to add to that, for example, by saying to Titus, hey, bro, you need to be circumcised in order to qualify to have Jesus, it would cancel and nullify and crush grace. Let me say this again. Circumcision was a beautiful sign of the older covenant, but it was fulfilled and therefore unnecessary in the new. And to now start making it necessary to add a works requirement to justification before God, if you did that even with the littlest thing, like a quick surgery, you push Christ aside and you say, it's me. My salvation hinges at least a little bit on the works that I bring to the table. This is why you need to be pulling for Paul in this passage, pulling for Barnabas, pulling for Titus. If these apostles do not say, yes, Paul is right, the gospel is grace, apprehended by faith, leading to a life that is beautifully holy and jam-packed with tons of works, but not dependent on them, if these apostles don't affirm and commend Paul in that, Titus is dead. If they don't say that, then Titus is being told, I'm sorry, man, Jesus is not enough for you. You need to add works. Your performance, your effort, your striving, your resume has to get in shape. And anybody in this room who has tried to get right with God through their works knows the futility of that life. We never get there. It's like working in a sweatshop, you know, every day, every day, every day, every day, working, 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 head down, head down, head down, thinking, hoping that tomorrow will be different, but your works move you nowhere. What Jesus Christ did on the cross was he nailed a closed sign on the sweatshop of self-righteousness forever. There's no works necessary to be saved. I have done the works. Put your trust in me. That's the gospel, and Paul knew it, and that's why he would not have Titus be circumcised or anybody else Because if he did, it was like opening the door to the sweatshop, a crack, and grace disappears, and it becomes about works again. And this is why he is bringing our buddy Titus to this meeting. Titus is the ultimate test case. He is the ultimate evidence. Here is my boy Titus, and he is not circumcised, but I am telling you what I've been telling him. He 
belongs to Jesus. You have to feel how intense that would be in this scene. Okay, now this would have been intense enough, just these two parties, and it was supposed to be a private meeting. You know, you get the room at the back of Panera, you've got your pecan rolls and whatever else. Somebody comes and knocks and you're like, it's a private meeting. Somehow, a third party snuck in to this room, you know, crawled through the vents or however this happened. Here's what Paul calls them, false brothers. A third party showed up. Let me get this next verse on here. There's so much text, I'm not going to put it all up here, but this is important to read with me. He says, yet because of false brothers, that's the third party, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. All right, don't worry about the jagged grammar in this sentence. Paul's writing fast. He's leaving prepositional phrases out. That's the best that we can translate this. What happens is that a third party shows up not invited. Ever go to a meeting and that happens? I thought it was going to be us, and then all of a sudden they were there. Not cool. Paul uses three unusual words to characterize the false brothers, and they're all like in the same family. He says they were secretly brought in. You feel that? They're sneaking and snooping around. Double agents. We're not even sure if Peter and James and John knew at this point that they were false brothers. Probably not. This probably came to light later. They snuck in. Slipped in. You feel that? So now you probably know what they look like, right? Lots of hair slicked back and greasy, big, wiry mustache. To do what? To spy out the freedom that Jesus has given us. In other words, they were in this meeting not to celebrate grace, but to get out their pen and check things out, to take some notes, to write down any rules that were broken. These false brothers show up and they are on the lookout for violations of the law. All that they know is law, 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 law. And so that is all that their eyes can see. Stick with me here. Illustration. Think of a health inspector with me. Please tell me there's no health inspectors in the room because I'm about to bang on you. You have a very important and needful profession. I affirm you in that. (laughs) Have you ever seen a health, health inspector at work? They show up to the restaurant, what? uninvited, unannounced, and they are not interested in the food or the vibe or the people or the ambiance. They're not interested in that. They've got a clipboard. Nowadays, it's probably an iPad. And they've got a code. And they've got a checklist. And they go through this restaurant spying, spying. And they are hoping to find something wrong. Ooh, that makes a health inspector's day. Shut this place down. And when they leave, they've got this long list. You have to do this. You have to fix this. You have to rectify this. This is always how a legalist behaves. Legalists are never on the lookout for grace, for grace. Grace could fall out of the sky, dressed like a hot pink monkey, and a legalist would miss it. They would have no idea. Grace has this amazing nose. 
Brandon's like, Mom, I can fart in the basement and you can smell it on the third floor. That's amazing. There's all these smells that she smells, like Matt's socks. And I just miss them, right? Because my nose is just not attuned to these things. This is the way that a legalist is. You could put grace on a plate in front of them. No idea what grace is. They miss it. They don't come in saying, man, look at all of this sin and how can the gospel take root here? No. What does a legalist do? They come in and they say, man, look at all of this sin and I got to write all this stuff down. Oh, and look at all these works that are not being accomplished properly. Look at all of these violations. And then what is a legalist's solution? To give you a list of works to go do to get right with God. Okay, now this may be the health inspector's way, but this is not the Christian's way. No. But that's exactly who these false brothers were. Sneaking and spying, note-taking, law-focused legalists. So does everybody now feel the tension? Okay, 59th minute in the show. Here we go. I finally got you there. You got legalists with the pen in hand, anxious to see if the law is upheld or not. And in comes Paul and Barnabas and Titus in all of his Jesus-loving, uncircumcised glory. It's Titus. What do they do right away? They start whispering to each other, writing down things. Properly, probably improperly circumcised. Need to check on Titus's background. Need to see what he's been eating this week. Put a note for that over there. And then Paul takes the floor and he unpacks the gospel, right? The sweatshop is shut down. Justification is by faith in the person and the work of Jesus. Judgment is coming. Sin is wicked serious. But grace is even more serious. And that grace is freely given, whether you've earned it or not. And here's living proof. Titus, repentant and holy and saved by grace. Boom, Paul is like a chef putting his work before the established judges. And then there's silence. Then there's like a six-minute commercial about toilet paper. and, And then they come back. And in this moment, the mission of the church hangs in the balance. Titus' salvation hangs in the balance. The truth of the gospel hangs in the balance. We know where Paul stands. Now we know where the false legalistic brothers stand. What about the apostles? Okay, there's a lot of text here. I'm going to read it to you. It reads something like the minutes from a board meeting, and that's probably what this is. Notes were probably taken of the established verdict that came from this conference. Check this out. And from those who seem to be influential, those I say who seemed influential, added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship 
to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You feel what happened here? Chef, false brothers, you have been chopped. Paul is overwhelmingly commended. It's a total swamping on every point, 110% affirmation and commendation of the gospel of grace. Oof. All right, let's run through these. Nothing was added to their gospel. Titus would have been shouting right now, your heart should be as well. This is huge. They heard the whole story. They said, that's it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We've got nothing to add to you. That is huge. How about this? The right hand of fellowship was given. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Okay, this was not some limp handshake or even the seven-mile road fist bump right here. This was like, oh, we're going to hold for a while because this is big. The right hand of fellowship in this day was a sign of unity, of oneness, of partnership. This is, this is so big to see that Paul's gospel is Peter's gospel, is James's gospel, is John's gospel, is Jesus's gospel, the right hand of fellowship. Titus was not circumcised. They had a surgeon in the other room waiting for the outcome. But he says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. So Titus walks out of this meeting, the happiest dude in all of Jerusalem. (laughs) But not why you would think. It's because it was shown again that Titus' salvation was not tethered to his works, to his resume, to his performance. He walked out of there flying, that he was free, that even Peter and James and John said, you are justified, just like you are, because of your faith in Jesus. And then last one, the truth of the gospel was preserved. This is a huge verse. Let me put it up here. This is Paul's summary of the incident. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, I love this. This was not just Titus' salvation at stake. This was you, 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 me. This was every bit of work Paul had done. All of the Galatians, all of us. The gospel was preserved on this day. It was kept free from the stain of legalism. All right, now all of this begs a final question, which is a big one. How did the apostles get there? They were just as Jewish as the false brothers. They had just as few Gentile friends as the false brothers. They were raised from birth in the traditions of Moses and the fathers. How did they end up landing 100% on the side of Paul 
and Barnabas and Titus. There's a beautiful phrase in the text that shows off the reason. Here's what it says. It says this. They perceived the grace that was given to me. That word perceived means they recognized it. They knew what grace smelled like. You ever walk out of your house? It's like 6 p.m. and you're starving and you go... Ooh, somebody's grilling out. How close is this house to me? I know that smell right there. Those are steak tips. This is how in tune with the gospel Peter and James and John had become. They hear Paul's words. They see Titus. They know what that is. That's grace. That's grace. And how did they know what grace smelled like? Why were their hearts so anxious to see and celebrate grace? What's the answer? They'd been with Jesus. They met Jesus. They hung out with Jesus day after day after day for years. Man, they were with Jesus the day that wicked, sinful tax collector Zacchaeus in humility, skittered up into a tree to sit with the kids just so he could get a view of Jesus. And everyone there was grumbling about it with their notepads. But what does Jesus do? He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. And he gospels him. And he says, this household has come to faith in God. And everyone else is grumbling except for who? Except for Jesus. They saw that over and over and over and over and over again. They knew their own stories, all three of them useless sinners, loved by Jesus, accepted by Jesus, saved by Jesus. They knew what grace looked like because they had been with Jesus. Once you get to know Christ and his grace, your heart is moved from looking for law to looking for grace. All right, that's his whole story. Let's just do two simple applications. You know what the first one's gonna be. Listen to what Paul has to say. Exclamation point, smiley face. So this is the whole first part of the book. He is establishing with you. I should say the spirit of God is establishing with you. You have a trustworthy, reliable source for gospel grace It's this apostle who received the commendation of the Jewish apostles. Okay, but one more, and this one is huge and gigantic. Be on the lookout for grace. Be on the lookout for grace. Here's the longer version of the application that I had typed up, but it doesn't fit up here, but hear this with me. Let's work hard to preserve the gospel for ourselves and our Tituses by refusing all forms of legalism and clinging to gospel grace. We and our children and the people that Jesus has sent us to desperately need this to be the tone of Seven Mile Road. Desperately. All right, here's what I mean. This scene is awesome and beautiful, and we rejoice in it. 
But it was not a common occurrence for these Jerusalem apostles to suddenly have a Gentile standing in their meeting place, in their city, within their cultural bounds. They were the apostles to the Jews. They ran in circles with people who had all been circumcised, and many of whom were solid, law-abiding, older covenant people, pretty clean. Now, they still needed grace, and they still needed the gospel. That's the beauty of the New Testament. But that was the circle that they ran in with. They did not intersect with the Tituses of the world a whole bunch. But intersecting with the Tituses of the world is the whole reason that Seven Mile Road exists. It's the whole reason that we do everything the way that we do it. By God's grace, these services and services all over greater Boston in years to come and gospel communities, there will be hundreds of gospel community gatherings just across this year. And the life that you live to the glory of God among your social networks, you know who's there? You know who's going to be there? At least every Friday, I'm praying hard that they would be there. It's Titus after Titus after Titus after Titus after Titus after Titus after Titus. And they are not law-abiding, older covenant people. And they are not cleaned up on the outside. And they are super far from any semblance of doing things that are holy or right. And they're going to walk into our church and our communities and our lives over and over and over again. And some of you may be here and Jesus in his grace may be leading you to life like Titus. When they do, and their resume is all wrong, and nothing in their life is as it is supposed to be, and there are violations that you could jot down until your pen runs out of ink. Are we going to react like legalists? Or are we going to react like the apostles? What does a legalist do? Crooked stare. Gets that one eyebrow to jump really high over here. I can't do it, but some of you have that spiritual gift of the stare. They get Get their pad out, they're taking notes, they're sneaky about it. A legalist will go Google you to find out violations in your life. They're always looking on the outside of the cup for what is wrong. And then what does a legalist preach? Preaches works. All right, time out. You got to do this and you got to do that. These are the rules around here. Let me see your shoes. Those aren't Air Jordans. You've got to take those things back. What is going on? Is that a scarf that you're wearing? Take that off. This is terrible. And all these other things in your life that don't match up with how you're supposed to look and feel. Those are silly examples, but you get the point of where legalism goes, right? We're going to preach law, and we're going to conform your behavior, and we're going to make the outside of the cup of your life nice and squeaky clean. If we do that on the front end, if we focus on the outside of the cup, we rob glory from Jesus, who is intending to clean the inside of the cup. And we either puff people up with pride, good job, 
you, you got the checklist done. Oh, you made it. Or we load on them a despair that they could never get out from under. That's not good enough. Get back in the sweatshop. Another week, we'll see how you did. That's the gospel of legalism. We cannot have it in our hearts. We cannot have it in this church. Instead, let's fight wicked hard to preserve the gospel of grace. Let's preach and be on the lookout for grace. You know, you know that I'm not talking about sloppy grace that affirms and celebrates sin. That's not what I'm saying. I don't know of any church that has more direct and more honest conversations with people about sin and its folly and its grossness and turning from it. We preach as hard as we can that you've been set free to live free. So let's pursue holiness. I am talking about once and for all putting away the code book and putting away the legal pad and the pen and loving and gospeling people and pointing them away from religion and away from themselves and toward Jesus and his grace. That reality was preserved in this text for us. Let's walk in step with it. I need us to be a church that lives right there on the lookout for grace. Do you know how we will know if we're getting there? We will have people coming to faith in Jesus with a million things wrong with them still. And you know what we'll be talking about? They're coming to faith in Jesus. Instead of, here's the 999 things that are still wrong with them. We will have people stepping into the life of this church and being so overwhelmed by the grace and the beauty and the goodness of God that they are saying to us, how do I live? Help me out. How do I walk in step with this gospel? This will be a joint where there is no pride and there is no despair. There's just freedom and there's joy. So I want us to get. All right, so ask us, ask yourself this question this week. If you were in this meeting, would you have responded like the legalists and the false brothers on the lookout for violations of law? That's all you can smell. Or have you been so overwhelmed by the free grace of Jesus? Has it dropped into your life like a, a monkey in a hot pink suit? And there it is. And it's changed everything. I can't miss it. And therefore, I'm going to be on the lookout for grace in others. Would you have been the legalist or would you have been the apostle saying, that's Jesus, that's grace? All right, let's pray that through together. Father, I pray that tens of thousands of Tituses, like many of us were, would, would come to hear the gospel of grace. I don't care who preaches it, Father. I don't care what church grows. I don't care where they flock to. Just please, for these Bostonians that we love, I pray that somebody would unpack grace, that somebody would walk them out of the sweatshop and say, it's over, it's finished, you're loved, you're welcome, you're accepted by the Father because of the Son, it's finished. And that church after church after church, starting in this church, and heart after heart after heart, starting with our hearts, would know what grace smells like, would be on the lookout for it, would celebrate and commend and affirm it wherever it may be that you would strike pride and you would strike 
despair and there would be a giddy, happy, tearful joy. Jesus, every one of us rejoices that on this day the truth of the gospel was preserved and that grace is the hope of our lives. This is such good news. We receive it with joy together today. Amen. All right. Thanks for listening.